Hello, and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we're going back to the very genesis of our species, pun intended, in search of the genetic Adam and Eve. Who were they? When and where did they live? Were there really just two of them? And how should we really be referring to these ancient ancestors anyway? Before we start, a few things to draw your attention to from the Genetic Society. The 1st of March is the deadline for the Society's next round of public engagement grants, with small grants up to £1,000 and larger grants up to £5,000 available to support online or in-person public engagement activities relevant to genetics. It's a great opportunity to spread the word to the wider world. The 3rd of March is the deadline for abstract submission for the Genetic Society's 2023 Spring Conference on Gene Regulatory Networks to be held at St Catherine's College, Oxford on the 12th to the 14th of April. Early bird cheap registration also closes on the 6th of March, so get your skates on. And finally, tickets are still available for the upcoming For Your Inspiration event at the Royal Institution in London from 6 to 9pm on the 17th of March, in partnership with the Genetic Society. Aimed at young people aged 13 and upwards, as well as adults, there will be a stimulating talk as well as hands-on activities with researchers from around the country, showing how they're using cutting-edge genetics research to learn more about the amazing diversity of life on our planet. Standard tickets are £16 or £10, £7 for RI members and patrons, and free for RI young members. You can find links to all these events and activities on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. And now, on with the show. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. This description of the creation of the first humans, Adam and Eve, from the biblical book of Genesis, is a cool story. But, in my opinion, the scientific truth about the origins of humans is way cooler. And an awful lot messier. Humans belong to the primate family, which first split off from other mammals around 85 million years ago. A quick 75 or so million years later, and these protoprimates had diversified into a range of apes, including what we now refer to as hominids, or great apes. This included the ancestors of species like gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos and orangutans, who lived in trees and walked on four legs, and another group who were a bit different. These curious creatures became terrestrial, living on land, not in trees, and were bipedal, meaning they walk on two legs. 
their brains also became much larger. This bunch, collectively known as Homo, is the group that modern humans evolved from. The journey from proto-monkeys to humans was nothing like that image that you sometimes see, showing the steps from monkey to caveman to modern human, something we've covered in detail back in Season 3 when we took a closer look at some icons of evolution. Instead, it was a much more complex, twisted family tree, with plenty of crossing branches and dead ends along the way. There are all kinds of strange ancestors lurking in our human family tree, including Ardipithecus and Australopithecus, along with many that we may never know. The earliest known proper human species, known as Homo habilis, was discovered in 1964 and lived around 2.8 million years ago in what's now known as Tanzania in Africa. Over the next few million years, there's a bunch of species like Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, and of course, our most famous cousins, the Neanderthals, who managed to get out of Africa and spread through Europe and Asia. We can date the appearance of the earliest fossils of Homo sapiens, that's you, that is, to just over 300,000 years ago a relatively small group of individuals that originated in Africa and stayed there until relatively recently, before venturing out and conquering the world. Woo! Go us! Given the difference between this evolutionary origin story and the biblical one, you might think that the terms Adam and Eve have no place in modern science. But you'd be wrong. The idea that there is some kind of ancient founding father and mother of our species is remarkably sticky. And it's one that is, kind of, backed up by modern population genetics. By analysing descendants' DNA, specifically mitochondrial DNA, which is passed down from mothers, and Y-chromosome DNA passed down from fathers, geneticists have been able to trace back our ancestry hundreds of thousands of years to the most recent female and male common ancestors from whom they believe all humans alive today are descended from. These individuals have been nicknamed Y-chromosomal Adam and Mitochondrial Eve. According to this theory, all men possess Y chromosomes inherited from Y chromosomal Adam, and all women contain mitochondrial DNA inherited from mitochondrial Eve. So, does this mean these two people were the first of our species? Well, it's complicated. To start with, let's find out all about mitochondrial Eve. And to do that, we need to do a little bit of digging into mitochondria and their DNA. Mitochondria were first spotted in 1857 by Swiss physiologist and anatomist Albert von Kolliker, who noticed strange granules in muscle cells, although he didn't give them a name. German pathologist Richard Altman became obsessed with these little things, calling them bioblasts, or life germs, before they were renamed mitochondria by his fellow countryman and microscope enthusiast Carl Bender. Mitochondria are effectively the power stations of cells. Tiny organelles that generate energy by breaking down the food we eat and turning it into adenosine triphosphate, or ATP. It's a kind of portable chemical energy currency that cells use to power all their biochemical reactions. So, they're pretty important. And also, although I say so myself, pretty cool. 
As we covered back in episode 23 of our very first series, Mergers and Acquisitions, we now know that the mitochondria in living cells are the result of endosymbiosis, an energy-generating bacterium getting swallowed up by another cell somewhere around 1.45 billion years ago. As a result of this unusual origin, mitochondria actually retain a small amount of their own DNA. A mere 16,500 or so DNA letters or base pairs compared with the 3 billion base pairs that make up the main human genome, known as the nuclear genome because it's found in the cell nucleus. But though it's small, the mitochondrial genome is essential for life, and it gets copied out every time the mitochondria, and the cells that they live in, multiply. Now, here's where it gets really cool. In the 1970s, scientists discovered that the way we inherit nuclear and mitochondrial DNA are slightly different. During fertilisation, when mummy and daddy love each other very much, nuclear DNA from sperm combines with nuclear DNA in the egg, half a genome from each, resulting in a mixture of both parents' genes. By contrast, although sperm are packed with mitochondria that provide them with the energy to swim where they're needed, they're abandoned outside the egg, and only the nuclear DNA goes in. So, this means that only the mitochondria that were packed in the resulting fertilised egg go on to be part of the cells of the developing embryo. This effectively means that every one of us only inherits our mother's mitochondria and the mitochondrial DNA. And if you're someone who becomes pregnant, then your baby will also inherit them too. And on and on down the generations. Because of this, Mitochondrial DNA can be used for tracing the genetic maternal line way back in time to find the mother of all mothers. At least, in theory. In 1987, scientists looking at the patterns of alterations in mitochondrial DNA from 147 people around the world estimated that they had all originally evolved from one common female ancestor who lived roughly 150,000 to 200,000 years ago in Africa. To put it simply, all people who are alive today are genetically connected to this one woman. They rather misleadingly named her Mitochondrial Eve, after the Biblical Eve. This nickname has caused no small amount of confusion, as it implies that all humans are descended solely from this single woman. Rather, there were many men and women who contributed their genes to our species. Mitochondrial Eve is just the last, most recent female ancestor to have survived. Because the human population would have been very small at various points, at such an early stage in our evolutionary history, and many people died along the way without having children, at some point only the offspring from this one individual female survived, and went on to have female children of her own, who then went on to have female children of their own, and so on and so on. This finding that we can trace our origins all the way back to one female founder also doesn't mean that every human alive today still has exactly the same mitochondrial DNA. Just as the DNA in our nuclear genomes has changed over time, as we pick up alterations and mutations as our species has expanded, the DNA in our mitochondria has done the same since the time that the mitochondrial Eve walked the Earth. 
But because mitochondrial DNA doesn't get mixed up along the way when eggs and sperm are made, unlike the nuclear DNA, it changes at a much slower rate. Human geneticists refer to what's known as haplogroups or haplotypes, each with their own name, to represent branch points on this mitochondrial family tree where natural genetic mutations have occurred to alter the genetic code in these little powerhouses. Essentially, mitochondrial haplogroups are groups of people that share similar mitochondrial DNA, although they all eventually trace back to the same common ancestor on the maternal line. Brian Sykes, author of the semi-fictional book The Seven Daughters of Eve, popularised the idea that Europeans alive today can be split into seven mitochondrial haplogroups, which he calls clan mothers, which all descended from the original mitochondrial Eve. But it's not quite as simple as Sykes first suggested. As research progresses, geneticists and Sykes himself have now added more haplogroups for European mitochondrial lineages, as well as many more for global lineages, in populations both large and small. A recent version of the global mitochondrial DNA tree comprises over 5,400 haplogroups and sub-haplogroups. While terms like mitochondrial Eve and clan mothers are appealing and catchy, it's important to remember that these individuals are nothing special. They're just lucky. There is no God and Garden of Eden stuff, just the random influence of birth, breeding and death in small founder populations, like the one that gave rise to modern humans. And the concept of a mitochondrial Eve isn't unique to humans either. For example, researchers have tracked down a sperm whale Eve who lived sometime around 10 to 80,000 years ago, millions of years after her species evolved. So while all sperm whales currently living in the world are descended from her, she wasn't just a single whale swimming around in the sea on her own. She was one of many but one who won the genetic lottery and ended up with an unbroken line of female descendants. As a wonderfully clear article in Smithsonian Magazine by Joshua Rapp Learn puts it, In reality, a mitochondrial Eve is not the first female of a species, but merely the most recent female historically from which all living animals of a species can trace their ancestry. Think of her like the peak of a genealogical pyramid in which all ancestors of a species meet. While everyone below is descended from her, that doesn't mean that there is no other female above her or that lived at the same time as her. Perhaps some of her contemporaries had no surviving children or they only had sons which wouldn't have passed on their mitochondrial DNA. It's also important to remember the fact highlighted by Clara Takahashi in her Obscure Dinosaur Facts blog about mitochondrial Eve. In a sexually reproducing population, every daughter has a mother, but not every mother has a daughter. The human Eve was the one that got lucky, out of many women living back in the early days of our species. And if you could go back even further, there would be a mitochondrial Eve of all hominids, and back and back and back and back until that very first symbiotic event. Mind blown.
You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzip.com, or come and say hello to us over on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip. And you can find out about the latest news, events, and grants from the Genetic Society at genetics.org.uk, and follow them on Twitter at Gensoc UK. Now we've met Eve, it's time to meet Adam. He's essentially the same as mitochondrial Eve, but with one obvious difference. No, not that one. I mean his Y chromosome. Humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes, long strings of DNA in all our cells. There's 22 matching pairs of autosomes, and then there's the sex chromosomes, X and Y. People who are genetically female have two X chromosomes, one coming from mum and one from dad, while people who are genetically male have an X and a Y, with the X coming from mum and the Y from dad. Because it's only biological males that have a Y chromosome, they are the only ones who can pass it on, father to son, down the generations. However, unlike mitochondrial DNA, the inheritance of the Y chromosome isn't as clean and clear-cut. Certain parts of the Y chromosome can pair up with the X chromosome and get swapped around when sperm are made, a process known as recombination, muddying the genetic waters. But there's certainly enough DNA on the Y chromosome that doesn't get messed about, providing a handy way of tracing male ancestry. And just as with mitochondrial DNA, geneticists are able to define a number of different Y-chromosome DNA haplogroups, people who all share highly similar Y-chromosomal DNA, to look at patterns of evolution, migration and relatedness in populations all over the world. In a similar way to the analysis that led to the discovery of mitochondrial Eve, researchers have been able to follow these genetic threads all the way back to our oldest common paternal ancestor, Y-chromosomal Adam. Just like mitochondrial Eve, this man is believed to have lived in Africa, providing further support to the idea that modern humans evolved in Africa and then spread out into the world. Unlike the biblical story, where Adam came first, this genetic Adam seems to have appeared on the scene later than mitochondrial Eve around 60 to 140,000 years ago for Adam, compared with the 140 to 240 proposed for Eve. There are a number of evolutionary reasons put forward to explain this, including different migration patterns of early human males and females, an imbalance in the proportion of female versus male babies born, and just plain old natural selection. However, this idea was shaken up by a paper published in 2013 describing the analysis of a DNA sample from an African-American man submitted to a commercial genetic testing lab, which pushed back the birthday of Y-chromosomal Adam to more than 300,000 years ago. Now, if you've been paying attention, you'll notice that's some way before modern humans are believed to have evolved in the first place. As might be expected, this announcement raised some questions and was challenged in a 2014 paper suggesting that this estimate was not correct because of poor DNA analysis. 
After conducting their own analysis, the researchers came to the conclusion that Y-chromosome Adam actually existed between 163 and 260,000 years ago, putting him back in the picture with the mitochondrial Eve, although only in terms of time. We have no idea if they lived in the same place, and there's still several tens of thousands of years each way, which is a heck of a long time to be waiting for a date. This estimate was shifted yet again a year later by a paper from another consortium of researchers who placed Adam's origin at around 245,000 years ago, with a buffer of about 50,000 years each way. Interestingly, this team also found evidence in the distribution of different versions of the Y chromosome to support not only the idea that a relatively small group of humans made it out of Africa to colonise Europe and Asia around 50 to 100,000 years ago, but also that there was another significant genetic bottleneck around 10,000 years ago. Exactly what caused this is unknown but it could be down to a boom and bust population explosion and collapse associated with the introduction of farming around that time. Or maybe it was to do with patterns of male migration and mating during various wars and conquests. Tracing the Y chromosome not only helps us find our earliest ancestors, it also provides information about the migration of these people. Researchers believe humans migrated down the coast of Africa and to Australia, India and Asia, while some others headed for Europe. This is backed by a recent study looking at Japanese males who were found to belong to a haplogroup of ancestors who originated in Africa. Speaking of wars and conquests, another notable figure who contributed to his own unique genetic bottleneck is Genghis Khan, the famed leader of the Mongol Empire across much of Asia in the 12th century. Y-chromosome analysis has shown that not only was Khan a fighter, he was a lover too. Nearly 8% of the men living in the region of his former empire carry near-identical Y-chromosomes, presumably Khans, adding up to around 0.5% of the current male population of the entire world, or a staggering 16 million descendants. Y-chromosome analysis has shed light on a number of other intriguing histories and mysteries from the past. For example, there's the Jefferson-Hemmings controversy, a long-running debate about whether the 19th-century US President Thomas Jefferson had fathered children with Sally Hemings, an enslaved woman owned by him. Historians had argued for decades whether this could be the case, and many thought it wasn't true. But in 1998, researchers analysing the Y chromosomes of male Jefferson and Hemings descendants showed that the president was indeed highly likely to have fathered Sally's youngest son, and, by inference, her five other children too. Moving from state to church, or rather temple, scientists have found that modern-day Jewish men belonging to the Kohenim caste, often with the surname Cohen, are genetically linked and likely to be descendants of the biblical high priest Aaron, the elder brother of Moses. Y-chromosome analysis has also supported the long-standing folk history narrative of the Lemba people from South Africa who claim to have been led out of Judea by a man named Buba and maintain a number of Jewish practices. 
DNA analysis has suggested that they too possess the same Y-chromosome haplotype as the Kohenim Jews descended from Aaron and represent a population that must have migrated back to Africa from the Middle East. Y-chromosome DNA has also helped to clarify the controversial origins of Brahmins, one of the largest ethnic groups in the Indian subcontinent. While some people have claimed that the Brahmins originated from a specific group known as Aryans, DNA analysis suggests that they are actually drawn from at least 12 different locations across the world, primarily Asia, India and the Middle East. And possibly most famously, Y-chromosome and mitochondrial DNA analysis have been used to show that the skeleton dug up in a Leicester car park was most likely to be King Richard III, the last English king to die in battle during the 15th century War of the Roses. There's also the connection between Y-chromosomes and surnames which are another useful tool for tracing ancestry, cultural groups, and even geographical origins. In Britain and many other patrilinear cultures, surnames are passed down the male line from father to son, along with the Y chromosome. This provides a link between people's genes and their names, which is particularly strong for people with rarer surnames. So there's a lot of interest in combining genealogy with genetics to see what we can learn about families and their histories. For example, because the UK is a group of islands, it's seen many waves of migration by different people throughout history, such as early Paleolithic settlers, Romans, Anglo-Saxons and Vikings. But how much of these people influenced our genetics today? To find out, Researchers led by Mark Jobling from the University of Leicester have used their genealogical genetic toolkit to help them track the migration of Vikings in the north of England, combining genetic data with archaeological surname and geographical information. The researchers were able to draw a geographical map of where different Y chromosomes could be found, revealing the contribution of the Vikings who came a thousand years ago to modern-day people living in the north of England suggesting a particularly heavy Scandinavian presence in the northwest back in the day. Jobling's colleague, Chiri King, then took this idea in a different direction, carrying out research to evaluate how surnames and Y-chromosome analysis could potentially be used in forensic investigations to solve crimes, by predicting a male suspect's possible surname from DNA evidence left at the scene. She found there was a 24% chance of people sharing the same surname also sharing the same ancestry, concluding that a large surname-based forensic database might contribute to the intelligence-led investigation of up to 70 rapes and murders per year in the UK. Similar studies around the world have followed to see how well this idea can be applied in other populations to help police home in on potential suspects. Going all the way back to our original genetic Adam and Eve, what can we say for sure about them? While they were individual human beings, we have no way of knowing who they were, or exactly when and where they lived. The closest we can get is being confident that they walked the earth sometime around 200,000 years ago, give or take several tens of thousands of years, and that they both lived in Africa. We can also be confident that they weren't the very first two humans that got it on and started our species. 
There were many others that came before them and lived at the same time. But due to luck, small populations, and the vagaries of birth, breeding, migration, and death, they've each ended up being the only male and female progenitor of all humans currently on Earth. And it's highly unlikely they ever met or mated. So, although the names Adam and Eve may be cute and also rich in cultural resonance for biblical believers, maybe it's time to retire these terms and think of something better. Send us your ideas on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip, and we'll share the best ones. That's all for now. We'll be back next time taking a look at the latest research investigating public attitudes to genetics. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, please head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, at geneticsunzip, and please, please, please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference, it helps more people discover the show, and it also makes me feel good, so thank you. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written and presented by me, Kat Arney, with additional research and scripting by Holly McHugh and Eleanor Bird. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo is designed by James Mayle. Audio production is by Emma Werner, and our producer is Sally LePage. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Genetics Unzipped.